Uh, if you have a Bible, you want to open up to Genesis 29. We're going to start in verse 31 and then bridge our way into Genesis chapter 30. Uh, the first 24 verses of Genesis chapter 30. While you do that, uh, this, is, this will affect your attendance on Easter Sunday, which is five weeks from today. Uh, we need to do four services that morning in order to uh, accommodate what we assume the attendance will be on that morning. And so it means that we need to shuffle all of our service times. Um, and in order to make that happen, uh, first service is at 7 a.m. All right, there you go. I will write all of you down for 7 a.m. on Easter Sunday. Um, 7 a.m., 8.30, 10 o'clock, and 11.30. Those are the four service times. Um, the, the hope in doing that is that two there in the middle sort of get into a, a decently appealing window at 8.30 and 10, rather than just one service being in that window and that middle service time being totally overwhelmed. Um, we, we tried everything we could in terms of keeping our normal three service times, but that meant that the first service had to be at 6.15, or there needed to be a fourth service at like 1.15. And so we just thought we'll shuffle the entire deck. We'll make everyone pick a different service time. Uh, so 7 a.m., 8.30, 10 o'clock, 11.30 um, on Easter Sunday. And there will be Kids Point offerings at all four of those. Um, so as you are making plans with family and thinking about that, it's the last Sunday in March. Those are the service times. Uh, all four services will be the same. Uh, please consider seven o'clock. All right. Um, I want to I want to start this morning a little a little differently than maybe we normally would. Um, we're going to do a group sort of like imagination exercise, and so if that works best for you, you know, by closing your eyes or something, go ahead and do that. Um, here's what I, I want you to imagine. You are a six-year-old Israelite child. Now, that can be any sort of era in Israel's history. So you could be out, you know, in the wilderness, having just left from Egypt after the Exodus event. You could be uh, living in the promised land, in like the peace and the prosperity of, say, David or Solomon's time as king. You could be living scattered after the exile um, somewhere in Babylon under Babylonian rule. So sort of pick your window. And you're from the tribe of Dan, which is not one of the more common ones that we talk about. So if you're from the tribe of Dan and you're out in the wilderness wandering, we'll say that the pillar of smoke and fire has come to rest and you're setting up camp. So there's a little like, Dan would always set up their camp north of the tabernacle. It's always the same. It's the colored box there. If you're living, let's say, under King David, 
your sort of tribal allotment of land is over there on the Mediterranean Sea. And so we'll just say for the sake of the imagination exercise that you live in the city of Joppa. Joppa is a coastal town. It is the city that um, Jonah fled to when he wanted to get on the boat and go to Tarshish rather than Nineveh. Joppa is also the city in the future in the New Testament that Peter is going to be in when he sees the vision from the Lord of the animals sort of descending from heaven and that pivotal moment shifts salvation history to the Gentiles. So uh, Joppa, you're setting up camp there in the wilderness or maybe you're sort of helping dad uh, clean the, the fishing nets on the boat and you start asking about your family's history. Why do we always set the tent up in the same place? How long have we lived here? Why is it that our people, our tribe, lives in such a small area when some of the other tribes have so much space? Your dad's trying to sort of patiently answer your questions and you keep prying like backward, further and further. Finally, you ask the question, why is the tribe even called Dan anyway, Dad? So he sets down what he's doing and he looks at you and he launches into a story that he clearly has memorized. And the story that he would launch into is what's sitting open on your lap starting in Genesis chapter 29. So he says... Well, son or daughter, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. But Rachel was unable to conceive. Leah conceived, gave birth to a son, and named him Reuben. For she said, the Lord has seen my affliction. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, And said, the Lord heard that I am unloved and has given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and said, at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne three sons for him. Therefore, he was named Levi. And she conceived again, gave birth to a son, and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. Then Leah stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she envied her sister. Give me sons or I will die, she said to Jacob. Jacob became angry with Rachel and said, am I in God's place? Who has withheld the offspring from you? Then she said, here is my maid Bilhah. Go sleep with her and she'll bear children for me so that through her I too can build a family. So Rachel gave her slave Bilhah to Jacob as a wife and he slept with her. Bilhah conceived, bore Jacob a son, Rachel said, God has vindicated me. Yes, he has heard me and given me a son. So she named him Dan. Rachel's slave Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Rachel said, in my wrestlings with God, I have wrestled with my sister and won. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her slave Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's slave Zilpah bore Jacob a son Then Leah said, what good fortune? She named him Gad. 
When Leah's slave Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, Leah said, I am happy that the women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. Reuben went out during the wheat harvest and found some mandrakes in the field. When he brought them to his mother, Leah, Rachel asked, Please give me some of your son's mandrake. But Leah, mandrakes. But Leah replied to her, Isn't it enough that you've taken my husband? Now you also want to take my son's mandrakes? Well then, Rachel said, he can sleep with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. And Jacob came in from the field that evening. Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come with me for I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So Jacob slept with her that night. God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my slave to my husband. And she named him Issachar. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. God has given me a good gift, Leah said. This time my husband will honor me because I have borne six sons for him. So she named him Zebulun. Later Leah bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and she said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add another son to me. And your dad stops, and you say, so all of the tribes are named after sons of a guy named Jacob? And your dad says, yeah. That's part of what the Torah tells us. The earliest book, Genesis. You kind of shake your head. Okay. But why do we live where we live? He said, well, I have to tell you a different story to tell you that. See, remember, part of what Genesis is doing for us is recording for the Jewish people their own history. And sure, a lot of that history is tied up in the promises that God made to Abraham, that get passed on to Isaac, that have been passed on to Jacob. But some of that history is just in the nitty-gritty details of something like, why are the tribes named what they are? How, how did the Israelite people end up in Egypt anyway? And why did they end up as slaves? How did they get out of there? Just think back to what we saw in last week's passage. We, we had this incredible look at human nature, the impact of sin, we also had just the simple introduction of all the figures who would end up being prominent players in the introduction of the heads of the Israelite tribes. In the last passage, you had Jacob, you met Leah, Rachel, you were reintroduced to Laban, and that text also told you that when the marriages happened between Jacob and Leah and Jacob and Rachel, that servants were given to them who would end up factoring in prominently in what took place in the very next account. And there's this incredible picture of God who despite all of the sin and the yuck of Genesis 29 and 30 is present and active and sovereign and providential over the whole thing. And so you ask dad, why are, why are we called Dan? And he's like, well, I'm going to have to tell you a sort of embarrassing story. 
But the good news of that sort of embarrassing story is that God is uniquely present with us. He's uniquely involved in our history. And he's in control of the whole thing. And so at its simplest, what is this account in Genesis 29 and 30 doing for us? It's setting up how and why Israel as a people ends up organized like it does over the rest of its history. But we can pull way more out of it than that. And so this morning, sort of where we're headed is we're going to take a look at the three primary figures in this passage. That's Jacob, Leah, Rachel. Because they give us three more sort of looks into not just the human condition, but what happens when idolatry runs away with our heart and our flesh. Idolatry just meaning that you take something and you elevate it to the place of, I must have this in order to be happy or in order to feel like my, my life is what I want it to be. I need fill in the blank things. We're gonna get three looks at that. We'll go one at a time through the account, through the lens of each of those individuals. And then as we do that, we'll take this long, hard look at the goodness and the grace of God to each one of the figures in the account. So we'll start with Leah. Leah sort of underscores for us the reality that every human being wants to be loved. Like, that is fundamental to what it is to be human. You just flip on the radio, and whether you flip the radio on to secular radio or Christian radio, I doubt you could make it two songs without hearing someone sing about this desire just to be loved, whether by another human or that love being met and fulfilled ultimately in God. And so scan with me, if you will, through the children that Leah or her servant ends up having. The first one is verse 32. Leah conceived, gave birth to a son, and named him Reuben. For she said, the Lord has seen my affliction. Surely my husband will love me now. What happens with the naming of each one of these sons is that there is a Hebrew, like, audible word play happening. Their names are not the same word as the thing every time, but the auditory when you hear these names, if you were speaking in Hebrew, would remind you of something else. And so Reuben's name is this audible sort of Hebrew tie for the word look. Look. The Lord has seen my affliction, <laughs> given me a son. He's, he's seen that. In verse 33 she conceives again, gives birth to a son, and said, the Lord heard that I am unloved and has given me this son also. The, the audible wordplay is heard. His name in Hebrew is Shimon. The word for heard in Hebrew is Shama. Hear, O hear, the Shema. Hear, O hear, O Israel. The Lord, the Lord, your God is one. Shema, Shimon, Shema. Verse 34 she conceived again, gave birth to a son, and said, at last my husband will become attached to me because I've borne three sons for him. Therefore, he was named Levi. Levi, 
Lava, Levi, and attached. And then, verse 35, she conceived, gave birth to a son, and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. Yea, Judah. The Hebrew word for praise is Oday. Judah, Oday. Every time Hebrew individuals heard the names of these tribes or these children, there are these word plays happening. It continues on if you jump down to verse 11 in chapter 30. Leah gives Zilpah to Jacob in verse 11. Zilpah bears a son and she says, what good fortune? She named him Gad. The word for fortune is Gad. That's, that one's direct. And then in verse 13, Leah said, I'm happy that women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. The word for happy there is Osher. And then finally she has two more sons. Verse 18, Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my slave to my husband. And she named him Issachar. And then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. God has given me a good gift. Leah said, this time my husband will honor me because I have borne six sons for him. So she named him Zebulun. Zebulun, and the word for honor is Zabal. Yisachar, and the word for given me my hire, that word hire is Sakar. So God sees that Leah is just chasing Jacob's love with all that she has and all that she is. And you get this literal picture of what it looks like when we turn love into an idol. You will do anything in order to get it. In fact, that's a pretty good diagnostic question for whether or not something in your own life is functioning as an idol. Like functionally in your heart and in your life, what controls your behavior? Obedience to the Lord or the pursuit of this thing that you've raised to the level of I must have it in order to be happy. If, if what functionally controls your behavior is not faithfulness and obedience to the Lord, but the pursuit of this other thing, that other thing has maybe become an idol. A, a second question you could ask yourself there. Would I be willing to sin in order to get this thing? That could be a sin of omission, a sin that you do, or it could be a sin of omission. Would I be willing to not do things that are faithful to the Lord in order to get this thing? You, you've probably turned that thing into an idol because it controls what you do rather than faithfulness and obedience to the Lord controlling what you do. And so what does God keep on doing throughout the passage here? He keeps demonstrating his love for Leah in this very tangible sort of way. I'm gonna take a, 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 a real quick minute here. Our society has taken what is already a powerful longing in every human being, the desire to be loved, and has ramped it up to the very level of like basic, fundamental human identity. And it's easy for those of us within the church to take sort of modern conventions as it relates to gender and sexuality and marriage and love and to, to look at those and lament the morality of it. And yet, the church, while decrying secular manifestations of this desire to be loved, has also taken that same thing 
and is no less guilty of a, a type of sin within this way. That's because what often exists within the church is not a matter of bad morality, but becomes a matter of misplaced idolatry. The uncomfortable part is that idolatry is no less of a sin than issues of morality. And so we're quick to turn marriage and family into an idol, to hold it up as like, this is the pinnacle of faith in following Jesus. You are married, you have children, as a husband, you treat your wife this way. As a wife, you treat your husband this way. As parents, you treat your kids this way. And that is what it is to faithfully follow Jesus. And you should do just about anything to get to this place where you've got that relationship and you have those children. That's taking a good thing, marriage and family, and raising it to the level of ultimate thing, which is idolatry. To be unmarried or not in a romantic love relationship is neither to be less human nor less Christian than someone who is married. Nor, the Bible would say, is it to completely miss out on the biblical picture of love and human relationship. And yet, have a conversation with a single or a widowed individual within the life of the church. And they can speak with great clarity about the near identity forming nature of the modern church's approach to human love, marriage, and relationship. They could tell you all about that with painful clarity because they exist in a space where they watch the church around them lift this thing up to like the highest level. Should we honor marriages? Should we seek to do them with wisdom? Should we honor parenthood? Should we seek to do it with wisdom? Absolutely. Should we try to do so faithfully? Absolutely. But if you don't have either one of those things, are you less human or less Christian than someone who does? Absolutely not. If that were the case, Jesus was less than human, but he's the most fully human being that's ever lived. And so while we decry the morality of of the issue outside of the church and the sin that exists there, we also have to be careful to, that we don't paper over or gloss over the idolatry of the issue that can often take root inside the church and thus sort of paper over the sin issue that lies at the heart of that. Inside or outside the church, we can let this longing to be loved run away with us. And then we end up chasing our, what our flesh says needs to be done in order to be loved. Okay, let's look at Rachel. With Rachel, we see that every human being wants to sort of protect their status. Before we even turn to exactly how this shows up for Rachel, know that this can manifest itself in any number of ways, in different cultural contexts, different individual circumstances, or even different seasons in your own life. It could play out at work, it could play out in social groups, it could play out in the eyes of our like tribes that we inhabit, not like tribes of Israel, but the sort of like groupings within our society that we all operate within. And so again, you see this show up in the way that Rachel names her children. Look at verses four through six in chapter 30. Rachel sees that she's not bearing any children. She goes to Jacob. She says, give me sons or I will die. There's a good indication that you've got an idol problem. Jacob responds, and then Rachel says, here's my, my maid, my servant, Bilhah. And Bilhah ends up pregnant. And then what does verse six say? Rachel said, God has vindicated me. 
Yes, he's heard me and given a son to me. He's vindicated. She names him Dan. That word for vindicated, the root word is din, D-I-N, Dean. And then in verse 8, it says, Rachel said, Bilhah conceives again. Rachel says, in my wrestlings with God, I have wrestled with my sister and one. And she names him Naphtali. That word for wrestle is Naphtuleen. Naphtali, Naphtuleen. And then at the end of the account, in verse 22, God remembered Rachel, listened to her, opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son. And she said, God has taken away my disgrace. So she named him Joseph. And she says, may the Lord add another. Joseph, Yosef is his name. Add is Yasof. Yosef, Yasof. The naming of those first two children who were born through her servant, Rachel is telegraphing where her heart lies. I need vindicated. Why? Because I need everyone to understand that I'm the one who is first in Jacob's eyes. And I need vindicated by a child to maintain and protect that. I have wrestled mightily with my sister in order to stay on top here. And I finally did it by giving my servant to my husband. And so at the beginning of the chunk with Rachel and in the middle toward the end of the whole thing, what's she doing? She's angling for the power in the situation. Jacob loves her. She knows that. So what does she do? Give me sons or I will die. I need sons to stay in this position. In the middle, she forces her servant to sleep with Jacob and bear two children. As another like idolatry diagnostic question, are there people around you who are becoming collateral damage in your pursuit of whatever that thing is? So one question to ask would be, am I sinning in order to get it? And if it's hard for you to really see that with clarity, ask yourself, am I wronging people around me in order to pursue this thing that I have raised up to the level of must have in my life in order to be happy or to feel whole or to be content? These two servants become very real collateral damage in what is taking place between Leah and Rachel as they pursue their idolatries. What does she do a little bit later? She resorts to what is essentially superstition. Reuben comes in with some mandrakes. Mandrakes were believed to be an aphrodisiac, to have fertility powers. She sees Reuben with them and thinks, aha, here's how I can finally solidify my position. I'll use those mandrakes That'll do it for me. And at the very end, when she finally has Joseph, did you catch the statement there when she names him? It starts out great. God has taken away my disgrace. She places that in the right spot. And then what does she do? She tries to control the Lord. Add another. I need one more. Even at the very end of it all, She's in the same spot. And this is a little uncomfortable because we don't like to think about things this way. But what does Rachel's soul really need in this whole thing? To be humbled. To come to the realization that maintaining her position of superiority there with Leah isn't the thing that's ultimately going to make her happy. And that's 
exactly what you see play out in the account. Bilhah bears two sons, but that's not enough. She gives birth to Joseph. That's immediately not enough. There are multiple interviews with like famous people. Jim Carrey did one about wealth. Tom Brady has done one um, about like winning in his profession. And both of them said, I wish every, Jim Carrey said, I wish everybody could get really rich and see that it's not the answer. Tom Brady has said, I wish everybody would just win a lot and see that it's not the answer. Now, in neither one of those interviews do they point to the thing that ultimately is. But what are they saying? I would need more added before it seems like this could ever be enough. And actually, you could not add enough to me, whether it be wealth or Super Bowl championships, before I would ever actually feel like I have enough. Such is the reality of the human condition. When our flesh and our idolatries run away with us, they're never satisfied. Our flesh, our sin, the idols that we worship in our hearts will always cry out, add another. Even when it's sort of couched in gratitude. I'm really grateful the Lord gave me this, give me more. And so even in the face of God's overwhelming goodness, our idols are still tyrants. Jacob. Every human wants to maintain some level of control. That's what you see here in Jacob. You only get one statement from him in this whole thing. You don't get any comment from him about having these children in whatever circumstances are put in front of him. No statement when Bilhah is pushed toward him. No statement when Zilpah is pushed toward him. No statement when the whole Mandrake thing happens. The only recorded statement comes after Rachel confronts him in her frustration. Give me children, sons, or I will die. Chapter 30, verse 2. Jacob became angry with Rachel and said, Am I in God's place who has withheld children from you? What's Jacob maintained throughout most of his life? Control. He was in control in the birthright stew incident. He was in control in the stealing the blessing incident. He was in control at the well when he met Rachel. Remember what he tried to do? He tried to send the rest of the uh, shepherds away, like she's approaching, he's like, hey, take the sheep out into the field. I'll, I'll move the stone on my own. Two times we've seen control has been taken away from him, and he's been angry about it both times. Leah gets sent into the tent instead of Rachel. He comes out and he says, what have you done to me? I worked for the younger, not the older. Now Leah is having sons, but Rachel is not, and he's angry about it. Am I in God's place? Here's one more diagnostic for whether or not there's maybe an idol operating in your life. What makes you angry that maybe shouldn't? Is there any, is there any reason for him to be angry at Rachel here? No, but he is. Why? He doesn't have control. It makes him mad. That's actually the pattern for all three. Leah finds out that Rachel's trying to take the mandrakes. What does she say? Isn't it enough that you've taken my husband? Now you want my son's mandrakes? Are we doing this over mandrakes? There are probably more. Rachel's afraid she's losing her status and position, and she says, give me sons or I will die. Jacob says, am I in God's place? 
Everyone's idols are leading them into sinful actions or sinful attitudes, and when they're pressed on, they're angry. It becomes difficult to control their emotional responses. Such is the nature of the human condition. And yet, all throughout the passage, God is doing some wonderfully kind and gracious things. Because the gospel is the antidote to all of our idolatries. Every single one of them. The the story in all of scripture, we say this all the time, is always about God. It's not about Jacob, it's not about Leah, it's not about Rachel. It's about the Lord and what he's done to form this people. The story of the Bible is about God and what he's done to uh, reconcile sinful human beings to himself. And so he intersects with each of these individuals who are all embroiled in the same very weird situation. He interacts with them in ways that are exactly what they need. Three different individuals, three different ways that he interacts. I was, I was running on, um, it was either Monday or Tuesday this week, and I'm coming down the street and there is a mom, uh, she's got a dog, a son who is a little older than a toddler, and a baby in a stroller. And the son has the dog's leash. There's a balloon, like, off of the stroller that must have, you know, just needed to come on the walk. And then uh, a daughter in the stroller. And the son, who is supposed to be in charge of the dog, decides he doesn't want to walk anymore. And so as I'm approaching, I see this mom. She's trying to get the son onto her shoulders to navigate the dog's leash, and she's on a hill. So she's stopping the stroller from like rolling backward away from her. And I thought, she's, she's trying to do three very separate things in one situation here while not losing sight of any of the pieces. What you've got in this passage is God doing three separate things in one situation that are exactly what these individuals need, and he never loses sight of any of the others. There's a parable. Uh, It's not a parable. It's an interaction that Jesus has in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10. And it's a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, and he says, good teacher, what must I do to uh, inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. You know the commandments and the young ruler says, I have done all of those. And the next phrase is that looking at him, Jesus loved him. So he gives a wildly incorrect answer. You haven't kept all of those perfectly from your childhood. He is about, when Jesus says, go sell everything you have and then come follow me, he's about to turn down that offer and go away sad, we're told. And in the middle of all of that, what does Jesus do? He just looks at this guy and he loves him. In the middle of all the brokenness that's playing out here, what does God do for these three? He just looks at them and he loves them. He's trying to love them right through their idolatry, right through their sin, right through their brokenness. 
What your idolatry ultimately needs is to be replaced. You can't just remove it. John Calvin says that the human heart is an idol factory. You will just produce another one. What you need is for it to be replaced, supplanted by something stronger, more powerful, more worthy of your time and your attention and your energy. And so watch what God does in this passage. He extends to Leah a love that Jacob could not match. That's what he's done for us. God extends to us love that no human being could ever match. Right from the start of our passage, Genesis 29, verse 31. See where this whole thing began. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. And then what's he gonna do? He's gonna let her know repeatedly that he loves her. In fact, you can just take the names of Leah's sons and you get this incredible reminder of the character of God and his love for his people. Remember, there are these audible, subtle reminders that he sees, he hears, he attaches himself to his people, he vindicates them, he's the blesser of them, he's the happiness of his people, he honors his people. For all of Israel's history, hey, what what tribe are you from? Simeon, Shimon, ah, Shema, the Lord hears us. He loves Leah right in the middle of her idolatry-ridden attempts to be loved by someone else. And the words used throughout the early portion of this story, God seeing, look, or God hearing, are the exact same words that Moses used to talk about God's response to Israel in their slavery in Egypt. God heard their cry, he saw them and he remembered them. So there's Leah, right, just in slavery to her own human condition and idolatry. And God is right there loving her through it. And Jesus is the pinnacle of this. And we should not ever forget it. Church, Jesus is the love that this world cannot match. Right in the middle of our slavery to our own human condition and our own sin, he loved us to the point of his death on the cross. Right in the middle of our ongoing idolatry struggles, right now, he's loving you. He's just looking at you and loving you. He hears us, he sees us vindicates us. He's attached himself to us. He is our happiness. He is the one who blesses us. That idol of just wanting to be loved so deeply that we would raise it to the place of like highest priority in our life. The only way for that to be supplanted inside of you is for you to fall deeply, deeply, deeply into wonder over the fact that Jesus has loved you in a way that no one can match. That has got to just uproot that idol and then plant itself down deep inside your heart. What about with Rachel? God wants Rachel to understand that she has status in his eyes. 
and therefore doesn't need to chase it in Jacob's. So the truth here is that God gives us a status that the world cannot match. And God's slow to act in this case with Rachel. Why? Because the great comfort Rachel needs is that her status is not tied to the number of children that she can bear for Jacob. This is a statement at the end in chapter 30, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel. We've talked about this previously already in Genesis, but in the Old Testament, when it says that God remembers something, it's not a statement that he had forgotten and then it, his like, memory is jogged and he, he remembers something. It means that God in this moment, according to his covenant love and his covenant faithfulness, chooses to act. So it would be fair to say in verse 22, then God chose to act on Rachel's behalf. Regardless of what Jacob thinks about the women involved in this whole thing, God will not forget her. God, by his very character, cannot and will not forget his people. She's his. So he looks at Rachel in the middle of her idolatry, and he just loves her. I'm just going to get you up on my shoulders. I'll take the dog. I'll keep the stroller from rolling down the hill. And I will love you right now as I'm also loving Leah right now. Church, our adoption into the family of God, thanks to the work of Jesus on our behalf, that's a status that nothing else in the world can possibly match for you. You get passed over for a promotion, you get left out of the social circle that you want to be a part of. Look, you've got a status that none of that can take away. You are a child of God. Is that gonna take the sting out of those situations? Probably not. But it is a reminder that those were never the things that were going to define you anyway. You're gonna stand before the Lord in your moment of judgment and he's not gonna say, how high up that career ladder did you finally get? What, what social circle did you ultimately land yourself in? Let, let me decide based on how things went for you down here whether or not you are worthy of coming into the presence of the Lord. What, what is it going to be? It's going to be you are a child of God because you've been adopted by my grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the status that's going to matter. You're going to be swept up into the presence of the Lord and you're not gonna remember any of these worldly status things anyway. You're just gonna completely forget them as you're overcome by the beauty of who the Lord is. That adoption is rock solid. It's eternally secure. It cannot be taken for you. And all the other stuff, they are vapors and mists that are here for a minute and then gone. Last, Jacob. What's God done for Jacob? He, he brings Jacob into a confrontation of his own idolatry limitations. What's the limit of your desire for control? Jacob, I'm gonna make you stare at it. Because God has control over our circumstances in a way that we cannot match. No matter how badly we want it, 
Am I in the place of God? Is Jacob saying that to Rachel or to himself? Like, who's, who's that question to? No, I'm not. I am a passenger on this thing, and Jacob is saying, I am not happy about it. And yet, the outcome of this whole thing is better for Jacob in the long run than if he had been in control of it. Get the 12 tribes of Israel. The two tribes that we talk about the most going forward. Judah. That, that's through Leah. Not Rachel. This is basically an entire book of the Bible, Leviticus, that's all about the Levites. That's also through Leah not Rachel. As a result of this whole thing, the eventual line of the Messiah comes into existence and the Bible's gonna have a lot to say about where he comes from. And brother and sister in Christ, Jesus, who has been present since before time began, he's moving everything toward his return. He's the one who controls our circumstances in a way that we cannot match. That's because if we controlled our circumstances, we would do so with a short-sighted desire to give ourselves whatever our idol wants in this moment, and he loves us too much to let us do that. So he says, I will give you what my grace knows you need that's best for your soul in light of eternity, and I will walk with you through your disappointment in the thing I didn't give you. I will meet you as you lament the failure of your idol and I will just keep loving you. I will carry you toward the thing that I have for you despite all of your kicking and all of your screaming and all of your not wanting that thing and I will love you the entire time. I don't know every life circumstance that exists within the life of our congregation. But I I do know that the Bible says that this is true. That what Jesus is doing in your life right now is better for you in light of eternity than if you manicured or controlled your own circumstances. And faith is trusting that to be true. And doing all that you can to joyfully walk forward in the light of that truth. So, what in, the, what in the world? Genesis 29 and 30 is as odd and broken as it gets. And yet, what, what's the big picture? Brian, you guys can come on up. The big picture here is God loving his people right in the middle of their own sin and their own unfaithfulness and their own disobedience. It's God loving his people and moving them toward the fulfillment of his purposes and his plans and his promises despite all of their idolatry and all of their desire to worship something else and all of the ways that their brokenness manifests itself. He looks at his people and he loves them. Follower of Jesus 
what God has done for you in Christ is he has looked at you and loved you. When you did not deserve it, when you did everything that would have disqualified you from it, the grace and the wonder of the gospel is that he looks at you and he loves you. And him looking at you and loving you does not mean that he can't look at another person and love them and another person and love them and another person and love them and do it perfectly for all of his people. The message of the gospel is God really does love us. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up and sing.